This is Faith and Letters. I'm your host, Ben Bishop. founder of the Mars Hill Audio Journal, and in my view, a sort of wizard prophet who arguably foresaw the coming popularity of the highly produced on-demand podcast style of audio that has exploded in popularity with podcasts themselves over the last decade, earlier than anybody else. For the uninitiated, The Mars Hill Audio Journal is a quarterly audio periodical featuring Ken's interviews with a wide-ranging slate of writers and thinkers, from the well-known and popular to the relatively obscure. We're talking psychologists, musicians, theologians. Ken talks with all of them, and he is often talking with them about books that they've written, not even always explicitly about faith, but forever circling the interests and questions that have fueled his own project for the last 30 years. Questions like, what is a good life? What's a healthy culture? What might we as Christians most benefit from focusing our attention on? And unlike my podcast, or a lot of podcasts you'll hear, or even shows uh, that are sort of based around interviews uh, on the radio, Ken has sort of a collage or pastiche kind of style you just call it i guess heavily edited he has long uh you know written essays where he'll essentially sort of hold forth on a topic and then he'll intersperse that or kind of splice that in with chunks from these conversations that he's had with people it's a really interesting style and i grew up listening to the marcel audio journal in both cassette and especially cd form because my dad was a subscriber in the 90s and 2000s So I have a long history with Mars Hill being on in the background, and it was so fun to get into all these questions with Ken, the questions that he has been asking about what a good life is and what culture is and how it can be changed and and what it's for. But first, he took me back in time to his early days working at NPR and then on to Mars Hill's origin story. I thought a good place to start might be to just talk about the origins of the Mars Hill Audio Journal and really really with a mind now with you know almost 3 decades of remove my understanding is you launched in 93 to kind of the kind of the can you give us like the emotional origin story what where were you at sort of personally as regards your professional life because my understanding is you'd been at NPR for for a number of years, left and then had a job maybe at a magazine, also a journal of some kind. So when you just start, take us kind of to the point where you're like, I'm going to do something new. Uh, you mentioned 93 was when we started uh, the regular periodical. It was actually 30 years ago this year that we did the pilot, for uh, w- which was August of 92, and that was 
just to experiment with the idea of an audio periodical because nobody had ever heard of such a thing. So that was uh, 30 years ago. But 50 years ago this month, I did my very first interview. <laughs> so it's, I'm, I've been thinking about it lately. I interviewed Johnny Cash when I was 19 years old. Oh, wow. And, and uh, I interviewed him for a college radio program when I was in college at the University of Maryland in the early 70s. I, I started doing serious work in radio, um, and I got permission, even though it was a state school, um, I got permission to do a Christian radio program on the campus radio station. And it was kind of a, a, a prototype of what I've been doing with Mars Hill because I was, uh, interviewing, I was interviewing some authors, Christian authors. There was a, a, a lot of music involved, though, on the show, and also poetry readings, um, artsy expressions of various kinds. Um, and it was, in, it was while I was in college, so that, that started, uh, yeah, so 72. That was also the year a book was published that was very influential for me by John Stott, who's not as well known today as he was 20, 30 years ago. Uh, English Evangelical Church of England preacher. Um, and he wrote a book called Your Mind Matters. And already as a young person in my late teens, I was aware of the danger of anti-intellectualism among a lot of evangelical Christians. And, and that resonated so much with me because I saw a lot of my friends uh, who were very committed believers, but it was like they turned their brains off when they went to church or when they prayed. And so, uh, so early on, I became concerned. Uh, well, first of all, yeah, concerned and intrigued. Why not just recognition that anti-intellectualism is not a Christian virtue, uh, but a recognition that it's a, it's a particular handicap in a time of great cultural change. And I was very much aware of great cultural change in the early 70s. You know, the Vietnam War was still on. And I was trying to figure out uh, wh why did we have, how did we get here? What happened to bring us to this point culturally? So, so then I went to N work at NPR. 1975, I started at NPR, shortly out of college. And I, I was really lucky to get this job at the network, producing stuff for national distribution. Uh, but I was very much aware of the fact that I was living in a post-Christian, working in a post-Christian setting. A lot of my colleagues at NPR had been raised as Christians, but had abandoned their faith at some point and considered themselves sophisticated uh, and too sophisticated to be a simple Christian believer. Uh, they knew of my faith. And then in 19, uh, after what, four years, three years, I, I left to go to seminary. Uh, which some of them found amusing. Uh, some of them were perplexed. Why are you going to seminary? And one, one uh, Susan Stamberg, who was then the host of uh, All Things Considered, uh, she said to me, I thought you just got married. Why are you going to seminary? I said, well, some of us are allowed to get married now. Maybe you've heard of the Protestant Reformation. It's, <laughs> it's been a thing for a while. So, um, but I went to seminary because I wanted to help. I didn't want to become a pastor. I really wanted to help Christians understand the contemporary cultural challenges they faced in a deeper theological way 
not just figuring out how to cope with them and not just figuring out how to be a kind of winsome apologist. I think that was very, very common. Okay, here's the state of the culture. How do we speak our message into that state without necessarily understanding is this state a good thing? Uh, did it get this? How did it get this way? In what ways are our own theological deficiencies partly to blame for the disorder that's present uh, in, in the world around us? So that was uh, that's why I, I I went to seminary. I didn't. I was hoping to get a teaching job at a church or a study center of some sort. I didn't get that job, uh, and I was offered to go back to NPR when Morning Edition went on the air in 1979, and I was offered the job as arts editor for Morning Edition, which meant 18 minutes a day, nine minutes in each hour, of arts and humanities coverage. Uh, and I uh, wasn't sure, you know, I thought this, this wasn't why I went to seminary, but I thought, well, I'll go back and see what I can do there. And so I, I, I really did have a sense at NPR of, again, being subversive, of bringing things into consideration uh, uh, th that weren't typically uh, on the radar for a lot of my colleagues. I ended up becoming the de facto religion reporter. So, for instance, the day John Paul II was shot, I was on the air live on the network for a while. So... I lost my job at NPR in 1983 because of a budget crisis. I ended up at an evangelical monthly magazine called Eternity Magazine and was, was invited to reconfigure the magazine, and I put together a proposal to basically make a print version of kind of what Mars Hill Audio is now. Um, really, rather than just a kind of um, uh, devotional Period. There were a lot more evangelical print magazines at the time, I should say that. So there was a lot of competition, and I said, we really need to define ourselves clearly. And I, I said, uh, uh, this was 1984 when I started there. I said, a lot of adults now were people who are part of what I was calling the Francis Schaeffer generation. They were people who grew up in the evangelical world who, um, who, who were really attending to cultural issues very deliberately for the very first time. Uh, and there were books that they could read about that sort of thing, but there was no periodical that was regularly championing that posture. And so I put together a proposal that, that that's, that's what we should do as a magazine. It was initially accepted, but uh, within a, less than a year, the, the board members expressed their great discontent, uh, partly because I realized that most of the board members for that organization were thoroughgoing dualists. They basically believed that, um, that Christianity had to do with personal piety and devotion and getting saved. And, but then when you went out into the world, uh, you basically lived by the world's rules unless there were moral complications involved. So the idea of actually taking a Christian worldview out into the world in a, in a deep way, a thick way, was not even imaginable to them, and they couldn't see why I was doing what I was doing. So I left Eternally after a little over two years, 1986, uh, hoping to start a new magazine. Uh, I was very deliberate about it uh, and, and started looking around to figure out how I could start a new magazine, but I had to do something for a living, so I worked with Chuck Colson for a year. I did some ghostwriting with him. I worked for... Uh, Richard John Newhouse for two years, co-editing the periodical. It was the quarterly journal, uh, the quarterly predecessor to First Things. It was called This World. In, in about 1990, as, as I was still trying to figure out how do I start a magazine, how, how do you raise money to start a print magazine, 
within about a two-month period, I had four people in my life, uh, two Christians and two non-Christians, who were from very different spheres of my experience, all say, Ken, have you thought about getting back into audio? Uh, and when the fourth person said it, <laughs> I thought, maybe God's trying to tell me something. Uh, and so I started to think about, well, what, what might that look like? And so I, started, I put together a proposal to do a program for public radio stations and uh, do essentially the same kinds of coverage I was doing when I had been at Morning Edition, but to do it in a more deliberate way, focusing attention on questions that were increasingly lost in, in the more radically secularized world of NPR. Uh, I went to 25 foundations to try to raise money to do this radio program, and none of them were interested. In 1992, I was still hoping to get a radio program started, and, and what I had thought of doing was of selling audio tapes that people could purchase that would contain the greatest hits of the recent months on the show, and maybe four or six times a year, uh, sell an audio tape. And I would call it the Mars Hill Tapes. Uh, but the tapes were going to be a kind of spinoff of a radio program. When I couldn't raise money for the radio program, I thought, I wonder if I could just sell the tapes as an audio periodical and get people to subscribe to them. Can I ask what it was like? And I think this the angle I'm thinking of here is, is actually, I'm, I find myself thinking about your wife, and I know nothing about <laughs> your wife, your marriage, your your family dynamics, but did it to the extent that it it seems you know the idea of like kind of creating something from scratch that feels like there's an element of risk. There's kind of almost like a startup in the in the in the in the garage tech startup home brewery kind of a, a narrative. Like was that was that scary for you and or for her? What was that like? Yeah, it was scary. It, um. It was scary, but I, you know, um, when we got married, I was I had already I was working at NPR when we got married, and in fact, uh, I was then thinking that was when I was thinking of going to seminary. That was my first stint at NPR, um, and uh, and we were thinking of uh, I'd I'd been very influenced by people who had spent time at at Labrie, uh, with Francis Schaeffer, and so we were thinking even before we got married, of being involved in some kind of residential study center or something like that. And we knew we knew from the time we got married that that this would be a kind of risky, that we were in, <laughs> we were setting out on some kind of risky life. I'm not an entrepreneur by temperament. I don't like starting new things uh, for the sake of starting new things. I know people who start new businesses and they get them up and running and three years later they want to start another new business. There were things I wanted to do, conceptually, content-wise, that I felt were real. That I had such a passion and believed they were so important that I that I believed it was worth taking the risk, even though I, I wasn't temperamentally uh, sympathetic to that risk. And Kate has has always uh, gone along with me. Um, it was the first. Uh, the first five or six years in particular uh, were very tense because of the fact that we were, I mean, I had no confidence that the idea of an audio periodical would take off at all. And and I was basically putting a business together as well as doing all the technical side of getting interviews done and producing them. And 
finding a cassette duplicator and getting things printed and getting a mailing license and all those things. Um, then there's a the question of fundraising. And, and I, uh, so I had to raise money because we, uh, we knew it wouldn't pay for itself by subscription. We knew that the, the subscriptions revenue wouldn't be enough to pay everything. Uh, so yeah, it was it was a great sense of risk. Um, but uh, I, about the third fourth year, I had a board member who had a, a strong bi uh, business uh, background, and he said, "Well, what's your fallback plan?" I said, "I don't have a fallback plan. If I had a fallback plan, I'd be doing that." <laughs> uh, I, and I said, "If I had a fallback plan, I wouldn't be as persistent and." Uh, dogged in pursuing what I think should be done. Uh, and there have always been, you know, there have been seasons when uh, it's felt, where the risk level has felt more intense again. So, for instance, when, when internet audio was a thing, I mean, you know, when we started, there was no internet audio. Suddenly, there's access to internet audio. And then, suddenly, people are producing podcasts. So, I had I had competition for people's time th that I'd never had before, and I still worry about that. Um, but I still think that the content of what we do is distinctive enough that that for people who want that content, uh, uh, I think we have a, a niche that that uh, that is unique. Um, the trick is. Uh, I think more people should want it, <laughs> uh, but uh, j j you know, ju just as uh, you know, my, my background in the arts, uh, serious film, serious music, uh, you know, I, I realize that most people don't want to watch a, a a film that's forty years old and in black and white, but really profound. You know, not a lot of people are going to of an evening get a, a film by Francois Truffaut to watch just because it's an important film. So so I realize that that's the case. And, and, and I'll say one last thing on this. The cultural challenges that we're facing now are, I think, more evident than they were 30 years ago when I started. I think this, it, it, they're not new challenges. I think what's happening is there are, there are cultural dynamics that have been present and more uh, covert or subdued or less consistent um, for for years, for decades. And in the last 20 years in particular, I think a lot of the uh, more radical, progressive, uh, and, and I should say more radical on both left and right, a lot of forces that are seem seem to be sources of stress, um, I think they're indicative of cultural tendencies that have been present uh, for hundreds of years, literally hundreds of years. And so, so to, to, to figure out how to, how to remain faithful in that, not just faithful just to hold on to your faith by, the, by, the, you know, by your fingernails, by, uh, but, but actually faithful and active, uh, faithful and, in, and engaged, um, to know how to do that wisely does require some understanding, uh, again, of how we got here.
So when I sent when I sent you an email earlier this week, in a sort of offhand way, or not, you know, unintentionally, I re- I used the word show to describe what you do, your project, the Marcel Audio Journal, and you said, I "Actually, don't like that word. I chose the term journal intentionally. Why? Tell me why." Yeah. Well, again, part of it gets back to my desire to, um, uh, you know, originally I wanted to do a pr- another print magazine. But but also, um, you know, I, I majored in communication studies uh, f- f- with an emphasis on film theory and criticism and also did a lot of broadcasting production work. And, uh, you know, a lot of people know may not know Marshall McLuhan's work ex- but they've heard the term the medium is the message and and um so so uh, the 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 form the form that any kind of medium of communication takes conveys uh a, a way of understanding things there uh there, there there's an implicit posture toward toward uh toward life in 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 forms that are present and and my uh I, my <laughs> my aversion to the word show uh, I, I, for me a show as in show business is 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 more about performance for the sake of entertaining or or diversion and it may be a high it may be a high level of diversion it may be uh you know 19th century italian opera uh, that that may be the show uh it may be uh 30 rock that may be the show but 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 the intention, typically, and and the, and the intention of the producer and the intention of the, of the of the viewer or listener, is is not, to to really, uh, encourage a level of contemplation and reflection that that might involve changing your mind. So back to the word culture, what I what I want to try to do is to make people more or to encourage I shouldn't make, to encourage a capacity for greater. Uh, self-awareness of how uh, our own convictions, our own orientation in life, is shaped, cultivated by our our cultural experiences. Uh, the word culture. Um, <laughs> I can't remember who it was. Can uh, I can't remember who it was who wrote a, a book in which he he looked at a number of common words in scholarly work and he said the word culture is the second most complicated word in the English language the only more complicated word in terms of its levels of reference is the word nature which is interesting so culture you know I was head of when I was at NPR one of my jobs I was head of something called the cultural reporting unit and what we meant by culture in that setting was the the arts arts and literature what we might call high culture uh, and then there's culture as known by anthropologists and sociologists, which is basically a set of institutions, practices, artifacts, traditions, beliefs that form the members of that culture, uh, f- form their deepest assumptions about reality. Uh, and and will form some explicit recognitions of things, but I think the most important thing about a culture is that it forms, uh, uh, it informs uh, what uh, Richard Weaver called our metaphysical dream of the world. It's metaphysical because it has to do with the nature of things, what's real. And it's a dream because it's it's not 
a theory. It's not something that's carefully uh, spelled out in you know a, a, a checklist or a list of propositions or an argument. So every every person, um, every member of a culture, Weaver says, uh, operates with a metaphysical dream of the world against which they evaluate the various theories or the various proposals for specific things that, that are present. And uh, we're typically not aware of the forces that have shaped our metaphysical dream of the world. Ken, you are interesting to me as a, as a voice in that you're open about your generally conservative views or, or stances on, on some things. But you don't seem to me to be somebody. You don't come across to me as somebody who is who is acting out of a kind of uh, defensive crouch or a persecution uh, kind of complex or vibe as regards the way in which contemporary culture or American culture, um, you know, interacts with faith. So it's like you have. I understand your experience. You as somebody who has. Um, these concerns, and yet you also don't seem panicky or angry or, or defensive. Is that is that fair? Do you I feel think, like you? Yeah, I think it's probably fair. I mean, I I I um, um my wife will t- and my children will testify. <laughs> it's not that I don't get angry. I mean, I I will say some pretty critical things in my scripts, uh, but they're 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 presented with a with a goal of um, of, of, of a kind of a, a, attentive uh, and careful cri- criticism, not, not, uh, not just blowing up. Um, I, well, first of all, I should say I've never, I've never identified as a conservative. I have a lot of friends who, uh, some very well-known friends who shall remain nameless now, who, 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 who are very, uh, very much at home going to conferences of conservatives. I've never gone to conferences of conservatives. Part, now, part of this is historical. That is, when I was in college, I wasn't interested in politics. And my, 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 my point of entry into serious uh, thinking about society and culture was, be, was through the arts, not through politics. Uh, and when I was, you know, engaged in the arts, either at, in college as a, you know, film in film studies or at NPR, um, uh, the, the, most of those people aren't conservatives. <laughs> uh, so I was I never I never identified as a conservative. The, the 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 mode of expression I started to say that my kids and my wife are most when they hear me angry. What I'll usually say is, why won't they? Why aren't they paying attention? That is, why why are people who are doing what they're doing not attending to what the meaning of what they're doing? And and I, I usually get more upset with self-identified Christians and conservatives than I do with you know people like I used to work with at NPR. Uh, in a sense, uh, when when they're criticized. Um, I see conservative friends criticizing progressives. And, and what I want to say is, first of all, is, well, the progressives, the, the, the bad policies they want to institute, um, 
those bad policies are a logical expression and a perfectly sensible expression of cultural dynamics that have been in play for at least 400 years. That's logically coherent in light of the dominant cultural convictions that shape our institutions. So if we really want to address them, rather than just being angry at them, uh, we first of all have to understand why the way they understand reality is so plausible to them. What deep, what metaphysical dream of the world shapes that understanding? And then how did that metaphysical dream of the world get shaped? Let me give you an example. Um, I, I was an early and consistent critic of the uh, so-called market-driven church movement and, and uh, the, 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 the uh, movement that arises in the 70s and 80s of, uh, of retooling how Christians worship uh, in light of, to, to try to be more seeker-sensitive, seeker seeker-friendly. Somebody interviewed me early on about this. They said, what do you think of seeker-sensitive worship? I said, as long as it's part of martyr-friendly churches, I'm fine with it. But, but in fact, <laughs> in fact, uh, the logic that's present, it, it's basically a commercial logic. It's basically saying, uh, we're going to we're going to accept the premise that the, that the customer is always right. We're, we're not going to make disciples. We want to have more consumers of, of the goods and services that we offer as a church. Now, we might try to make disciples later, but we're going to get them in the door, and, and, and it's kind of a bait and switch. We're going to get them in the door by, by acting um, in ways that, that aren't... Uh, that aren't driven by our deepest understanding of who God is and what beauty is and what the shape of creation is, but but we're going to get them in the door by accepting an inferior or a mistaken understanding of what, let's say, what beauty is. I'll st stay with that. There's a kind of scarcity mindset. There's X number of potential you know, tithe dollars and members in our city, and we're in competition with other churches for that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and really, um, th there is, you know, I think a lot of clergy have kind of, uh, I think they set the bar, they set the bar lower and lower. And I, I say this as somebody, again, John Stott, 1972, Your Mind Matters, The Misery and Menace of Mindless Christianity. And he was concerned about setting the bar lower intellectually. But if you go back and look at Christianity Today in 1972 and look at Christianity Today magazine today, the bar is definitely a lot lower. Uh, the, um, but, and, and if you look at the average intellectual uh, uh, shape of, of a lot of sermons or popular books, um, I mean, even Stott's books or J.I. Packer was very popular as an evangelical writer in the 1970s. Um, I don't think I don't think uh, I don't think InterVarsity Press or uh, Baker or wh whoever the Christian publishers are. I don't think they would publish those books, and they wouldn't get as big a readership. When I was uh, when I when I was in my teens and twenties, uh, there were a lot of books. Let's say J.I. Packer's book Knowing God, which is a pretty compelling book, but every college student I knew or college graduate I knew had either read Knowing God or felt guilty because they hadn't read Knowing God. <laughs> uh, 
and, and so that was part of, there was still a kind of mentality that, you know, we really need to wrestle with these things and, and grow in understanding. So anyway, that uh, my, I get more angry at the failure of Christians and people who would identify themselves as moral conservatives uh, in, uh, in, 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 first of all, in recognizing how it is we got here. Why, why did, uh, why, for instance, now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, how do we explain the, the level of, uh, of response to that and, 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 and the kinds of arguments that are being made? Um, I'll, I'll give a, a, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that one reason is that we see that kind of response is because there's an understanding of what freedom is that's deeply flawed and that our culture embraces an idea of freedom that's deeply flawed. And sadly, most Christian institutions and most Christian clergy and teachers have not confronted that false idea of freedom. And sometimes they often embrace it explicitly or implicitly, usually implicitly. So if we're, and in fact, I think that the the seeker-friendly church, <laughs> the market-driven church movement is basically it's, it's a consumer model that has an idea of freedom at, at its core. Uh, so if, we're, if, we're, if our own institutions and practices are driven by a, a, a metaphysical dream of freedom that is flawed, we're not actually offering any kind of counter message to the world uh, that, that would actually be well, first of all, a truer understanding, but also uh, a, an understanding that's actually more fitting for the kinds of creatures we are. It seems to me that you, and I think you're explicit about this at times, but you view your role as, you know, a, a kind of translator or a kind of a connector, someone who's kind of carrying the fire, drawing people's attention to that which might help or, or shape them in ways, I think this is implicit, that you that you think are good or or, or would be helpful. My it's interesting, I, I haven't I hadn't thought about this until we started talking. And I'm not I haven't really been explicit about it on on my podcast, but my my ethos, sort of my organizing principle is more I think it feels a little different or like maybe I could contrast contrast it in some ways with yours in that I, f I feel kind of a general impulse to bring in um, <clears throat> kind of a, and I'm still starting out, I'm early, but a, a breadth of voices on perspective or perspectives from across Christianity writ large, mostly, you know, American Christianity, but all, all the big streams. But I maybe would contrast that, and this is where I would invite you to correct me or, or kind of weigh in, but your, your approach seems to be more um, to sort of be in some ways like a, an arbiter. You described yourself as a scout. You're, you're leading us, the listener, as the horse to the water, generally speaking, that you think is good to drink. Not like, here's a range of troughs you could drink from. Do what? Right. <laughs> is yeah, that fair? Yeah. And is right, that? Yeah. Okay. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's become more pronounced as I've, as I think I've understood you know, I started off with a with with a presupposition that were the, that there were some cultural things that we should challenge, 
or absent ourselves from. Um, and that there were some ways, there were some ways of living that are more fitting for the kinds of creatures we are and the kind of world God has made than others. And that's what, you know, uh, one definition I've used of culture is culture is what we make of creation. That is, culture is an expression, uh, cultural institutions are expressions of our, first of all, literally makings of a creation. We have colors and we have sounds and we make art and we make music, so we make things literally. Uh, but we also, figuratively, we make something of the fact that we're male and female, or we make something of the fact that we have to take food from the ground in order to live, that there's actually a, a kind of judgment made there, and that some of those judgments are better than others. So I just did an interview this week with um, Norman Wiersbe, who's written a lot of books on food and agriculture and a Christian understanding of how, how we should, how we should re uh, regard the earth how it should regard creation, uh, and how do we love creation in a way that mirrors God's love for creation. Uh, and there are all sorts of theological things that are involved in that. But he's explicitly, he's, he's presenting a trough, <laughs> and he's explicitly critical of other troughs, because, in fact, uh, there, are, there are troughs, there are theologies of creation that basically in, embrace the idea that the world is just a bunch of raw material for us to use as ever we want to. That, that, that the only, um, that, that, that morality is all about uh, individual uh, practices and, uh, but the idea that, that there are better ways to, to, to raise cows, there are ways to raise cows that, or pigs. Actually, I interviewed uh, Joel Salton has a wonderful book called The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs. Joel is a farmer who has a lot of pigs. And, uh, and he believes that there are some ways of honoring the pigness of pigs more, uh, more faithfully than the typical factory farming. So, so okay, I've, I've taken one example. Uh, now, I could, I could decide to interview people who, you know, who do factory farming to the glory of God. Ha! <laughs> uh, but I don't think, see, I don't think they would be doing it to the glory of God. I don't think, I don't think you can do things that are contrary to the order of creation. Now, so, 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 yeah, and one of the big kind of overarching assumptions in the work I do is this idea that creation has an order to it that is distinguishable, intelligible, knowable in some ways. I mean, obviously, not infallibly, but that we that the, and that there are some ways of living in accord with that order uh, better than other ways. Some some ways are better than other ways. Now, also, I'm aware of the fact that th historically, theologically, there are theological traditions and philosophical traditions that would challenge that very idea that there's an order in the nature of things. Uh, that would say that no. Um, there's no order in the nature of things. What, what, what matters is our intentionality. What really matters is what our intentions were. And then if we go out with good intentions, no matter how we treat things, the pigs, the cows, whatever, uh, our intentions are good. And that's what really matters. Well, I think that's false. And I think that a lot of the, here's the thing, from the time I started, I, I saw a lot of conservative Christians, theologically conservative Christians, not necessarily all politically conservative, but theologically conservative Christians, who were troubled by some aspect of culture or another. Let's say uh, the, state, the state of the American family for, or 
the uh, the uh, pursuit of pornography or uh, or it might be global warming uh, well they're critical of those things but but they typically typically hadn't stopped to say well why are those things happening what what are those things expressions of and and then what what theology do we need to to, to grasp both how that how that became the common expression uh and then what do we need to what not only what do we need to believe and affirm but and teach but how do we need to reorder things uh, so that um, so that we bear witness to a better way of understanding things? How do you go about approaching people who are overtly, openly not Christians or who you have no reason to think are Christians in light of your show's you know sort of overt overt organizing principles? Does it feel incumbent on you to say, hey, I'm going to take this interview and I'm going to interweave a lot of my own commentary toward the end of describing what I think is the good life as an Orthodox Christian? Or do you, how does, what is, how does that go when you approach people? No, I, I, I don't, I don't put it quite that way. I, I wrote years ago, I wrote a kind of template for letters that my, my assistants would use to make an initial appeal. And I would basically you know, it basically says that 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 you know our editorial model proceeds from the uh, historical commitments within Christianity, uh, but philosophically and theologically, to engage important ideas of culture, and 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 we're very una, you know unapologetic about it. Um, some I've had only I think only one person for sure refused to be interviewed because of it. I won't mention who it was, a prominent uh, so- sociologist. Uh, we've had several people who were <laughs> who were really perplexed. One woman who wrote a really interesting book on um, the history of planting memorial trees. And uh, it's a very interesting book on, you know, people planting trees to memorialize important things in their lives. It was a, published by a university press. And uh, I thought, well, that's that's a very interesting phenomenon. That's a, what an interesting practice. It's an interesting practice because of the role of trees in the Bible. <laughs> First of all, in Genesis, and then in Revelation, we hear that in the New Jerusalem, there's a tree with leaves of healing, and there are lots of trees. Uh, so, as as a as a symbol of memory as a symbol of community that's a really interesting thing but she couldn't understand why why do you want to talk to me and i so i was more explicit about some of the theological commitments and as i recall after the interview she's one of the few guests who sent me a thank you note after we talked i don't tell them that i'm going to edit it uh and add my own comments because that might scare them and i one thing i'm very deliberate about is i don't ever want to uh skew an interview in a direction that the guest won't be happy with. So I will always make sure that however it's edited, that that they would feel that they've been represented uh, accurately, fairly, uh, generously. I, I, you know, I I think of myself as the host and a host has to be hospitable. And uh, so I I try to treat my guests with great hospitality. all the way through, during the interview and then uh, into the into the final editing. I think if you read enough journalism, 
and I've just had to find my way. You know, I'm trying. I'm still trying to find my footing as an interviewer. I've done dozens instead of hundreds or thousands like you, but um, I've interviewed for different contexts. I've interviewed novelists for you know the local newspaper, and I used to have a, a blog about artists. Um, I remember. So basically, if if you read enough journalism, if you read enough work, certainly like you know political stories by reporters, you can get lulled into or just sort of almost contaminate the way you think about conducting an interview. Um, and let me just fast forward and say that the antidote for me was, I actually read something that Malcolm Gladwell <clears throat> said at one point where he's like, because he's interviewed tons of people for his books, and he said, look, I'm, I never want someone who I have interviewed to feel bad about having given me the interview. It's not a game, it's not a game of gotcha. I'm not trying to catch somebody out. And obviously the, the program that you're doing is that's not the point. It obviously doesn't lend itself to that, but that is, yeah, that's interesting. And, and frankly, I think heartening <laughs> to hear you say that. There are times when I, when I want to take issue and, and I do, I have done that a little bit where I've pushed a little bit, but I always, I, I never want to feel like um, it's a contest. As you, as you look back on this 30 years of doing this project, do you feel it's all been worth something? Do you feel discouraged? Do you feel heartened? Do you feel proud? How, how do you feel as you look back over this big chunk of your life's work? Yeah, well, I, I think I might, I might have done some things differently. I, I find, I'll be candid, I, there are m many days when I uh, am discouraged because I feel like uh, uh, well, so I'll tell you a story. A, a few years ago, I was at a, a, a colloquium with maybe a dozen people, some of whom were really familiar with my work. And there was a guy in the room who had been listening to me for years, and he was just so excited that Ken Myers was part of this group. And, and so we were discussing some things about contemporary social life and politics and... and um, cultural issues and about three hours into the meeting he was clearly frustrated with things I was saying and at, at one point he, he finally blurted out he said I can't believe I disagree with Ken Myers so much <laughs> and and I wanted to say well then you haven't been paying attention because if you've been listening to my work you know for as long as you say you are and you you've really been paying attention to what my guests have been saying and what I've been saying, uh, you wouldn't be surprised that I'm saying what I'm saying now in this room. It's not as if there's some new revelation that I've been concealing, and now it's just the secret teaching now that we're alone in this hotel room, uh, banquet room. Um, so, uh, and that's, I, I, I talked to a fellow recently uh, who teaches uh, at a seminary, and I said how, the, the challenge, particularly in the media world we in, but I think it's it's always a challenge. How do you how do you encourage people to uh, to consider the possibility of changing their minds? And uh, because the media world we're in now, it's so easy to find things that you agree with or that that you feel comfortable with that don't really challenge you much. Uh, but the idea that actually there not and it's not so much a, a fact that. You know, listening to something that has different answers to questions 
than the answers you have, but it's people who have questions you haven't even thought to ask. And that's the really hard part. And that's what I, you know, there are many times what I felt like since I, I wanted to promote from the beginning a deeper understanding of how our culture got to where it is. And I just put it in technical terms, the culture of modernity. What, what explains the culture of modernity? What are its effects, its causes and effects? Um, I know a lot more about th th that question than I did 30 years ago. And I, and I, and I, I realize now that it's a more complicated story and it raises questions that I had that I hadn't thought about raising 30 years ago when I started. Thank you so much to Ken Myers for coming on the show. And a special shout out to my dad. Dad, can you believe I got Ken on the show? How cool is that? Faith in Letters is a production of Fax Animus Studios. Our production assistant is Tess Seabright. Fact-checking by Dean Gilbert. Special thanks to Lydia Bradley. We'll catch you next week.